So good to be with you. We serve a God who in the Bible calls himself the great I am. And at no point in history has God ever become the great I was. He still is the great I am. And no point has he ever become the great I will be again one day. He is still the great I am. And it's great to be with you worshiping our God today. If you have your Bibles with you, open up to Colossians chapter 3. I love the series that you've been in. It's an honor to be here. It's uh, just so uh, exciting, humbling for me to, to witness my brother and my niece leading you in worship today. Thank you for being a church that loves, loves my family so well. As we read Colossians 3, there are four verses I want to unpack for you today, and I want to encourage you to do two things. One, I want you to be thinking about what is one thing that God speaks through me over the next few minutes that you need to take with you from here to encourage you throughout the rest of the week. And number two is I want you to be thinking of one thing that I say that you need to use to bless someone else. It could be the same thing. It could be something different. But what is one thing that can encourage you throughout this week, and what is one thing you need to use to bless someone else with, whether it's a word-to-word, a word of mouth, you, something you speak from your mouth to someone else, a word you put on social media, something you can use to encourage someone else. Here's the word of God, Colossians 3. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And the church said, church said, amen. I grew up going to church camp all through middle school, high school. And I remember one year at church camp, our, our teacher took one day in our class where he wanted to teach us and unpack this whole metaphor of the caterpillar becoming the butterfly. So there are images and metaphors that God has given the world. <clears throat> some of them we have to work hard at, like to understand, like the lion and the lamb, or some of the parables Jesus would tell about yeast or mustard seed. But then there's the caterpillar and the butterfly, and it's like God said, here's a gift to the church. You really don't have to think hard about this one, all right? You die, you come to life. Caterpillar goes into the cocoon, caterpillar comes to life as a butterfly. So this teacher took this day to do it. He was going to walk us through this, and he's going to teach us the gospel using this metaphor, this image, this illustration. So he asked for a volunteer, and this girl, her name was Katie, she volunteered. And he said, here's what I want this class to do. I brought dozens of rolls of toilet paper, and I want you to wrap her up completely. So we had a blast doing this. At the time, I was a part of a group in our youth group. It was a secret group of guys, and we called ourselves the Banana Busters. So we would spend the weekends where we would travel around to families in our church, and we would roll in toilet paper their houses, and then we would take a banana at the very end and smash it on the mailbox and say, you got busted by the Banana Busters. This went on for months, and we were good at this. We knew how to do this. So we took toilet paper. We started wrapping this girl head to toe. We left a little space. The teacher told us we had to leave a little space so she could breathe. So we left that. Dozens of toilet paper rolls were all around her. She looked like a mummy. And then he said, Katie, are you okay? And Katie said, yeah, I'm fine. He said, Katie, can you breathe? Katie said, yes, I can breathe. He said, I want you to stand still while I teach for about 10 minutes. So Katie stood still and the teacher taught. And he starts teaching us. And it was pretty intense. Like he's not joking around. Like he's unpacking the gospel for us. How you through Christ, we die, and we're able to die because of the death of Jesus. And because 
We die and Jesus died. We get to experience life with him and walk us through the entire gospel that there's no sin you can commit that the power of the blood of Jesus cannot wash over. And there's no one here, no matter where you've been, that God doesn't want to bring you to life in every kind of way. And he walks us through this. It was intense. It was powerful. And then he looked over at Katie and he said, how many of you are ready to see Katie come to life? And we're like, yeah, Katie, come to life. And he's like, all right, Katie, on the count of three, come to life. One, two, three. Katie didn't move. He's like, all right, let's try it again. Katie, one, two, three. Katie didn't move. Katie starts to cry. So now all you see is this girl inside of what looks like a mummy, right? And she's just crying. You can hear her. You can see her shoulders bouncing a little bit. For a moment, we were like, did we, did we roll her too tight? Did we cut off circulation? Like, what happened to Katie? And he's like, Katie, what's wrong? And then Katie, inside of all the toilet paper, starts having a conversation with the teacher, and, and he's talking to her, and she's talking to him, and come to find out, Katie's parents had just divorced. And this is all coming out like through the toilet paper. Her parents had divorced, and she was wearing the guilt and shame of this broken relationship. And she starts talking about guilt and shame and this burden she feels. And she's not felt the presence of God. And, and, and Mike, the teacher, is now counseling her. And then he looks at us and he says, how many of you want to see Katie come to life? And we're like, we want to see Katie come to life. And he says, I think Katie needs help from her friends and from the church to help her come to life. So we didn't know that we're living out what the church is supposed to live out in that moment, but we run over there and we're like tearing toilet paper off of her, doing whatever we can to help Katie come to life in God and to experience freedom in God. How many of you have ever experienced that in the church? Or we should experience that in the church. This should be the place where we can come and we can say, I feel loaded up with guilt and shame or embarrassment or moral failure. Maybe because of your own sin. Maybe because of circumstances or hurting relationships, emotions, whatever it is weighing you down. And church should be the place where we can say, I feel covered up with what reflects of death and I need help coming to life. And the church should be the ones who are those who are ready to claw into someone's life to help them come to life and God. Amen? Sometimes I think there are Christians who with Dallas Willard, this great theologian, once described that he said, man, there are too many people who are vampire Christians that they only want Jesus for his blood. Sometimes I think there are a lot of Christians and they want, they want the death of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, and what it has to give them, but they don't want to come to life in Jesus. And sometimes I think there are people who want life in Jesus and the hope and resurrection that comes with Jesus, but they don't want to have to go through death to get the resurrection. There's no way to get the resurrection but through death. Well, my wife and I left Texas, and we moved to Memphis over 10 years ago. We moved to Memphis, and we started praying prayers like, God, help us to love the city the way you love the city. God, help our hearts to be broken by the things that break your heart. And little did we know the ways God was going to change our lives through those prayers have you ever prayed a prayer in your life before and you're like, oops, I don't know if I should pray that unless I was ready for God to wreck my life. So after being in Memphis for three years, we relocated. We're seven years now. We've lived in an underprivileged community in the heart of Memphis. One of the best decisions, greatest adventures we've been on in our lives. And early on when we moved in, I, was do, I would do everything I can to get to know the city better. I did ride-alongs with fire departments, police officers, undercover cops. I would do prayer drives. Just, God, if you have called us to this context, how does the power of the resurrection want to come to life throughout my context, my neighborhood, the city of Memphis? And God started answering these prayers. 
One night I went with a buddy. He was an undercover cop, but he was off duty, so we had to drive my truck. It was a 1995 Ford Ranger pickup truck. My dad bought it when we lived here in DFW. It became my truck when I went to college, and we, I drove this thing 18 years until it died back in 2013, but we don't talk about its death, all right? And I was driving, it was an old truck when I was on this ride along. And he said, my, my buddy said, I want to take you to a place where there's a guy named James. And we're holding a few charges over James because he's helping to solve some cases with us in the police department. But I want you to meet this guy. So I went and I met James. He was 32 at the time. It's been 16 years of his life in and out of city jail and prison. It was um, a car theft and... It, it, it was adrenaline for him, was a powerful drug dealer. And, and we, were, we hung out for a little while. And then I, at one point, I just said, James, my, my buddy and I, we're going to be driving all around Memphis tonight. And we're going to be getting out and walking some neighborhoods. So, man, you see my truck right here. Is my truck going to be okay whenever we walk some neighborhoods? And James looked at my truck and he looked at me and he looked at back at my truck and he said, Pastor Josh, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but ain't nobody going to touch your truck tonight, all right? <laughs> you can leave the, that thing unlocked. Nobody's going to take it, all right? We hung out for a little while, and toward the end, I said, James, I, I, can I ask you one question, man? Because I've heard that 201 Poplar is a famous jail, infamous jail in Memphis. I said, at 201 Poplar, I've heard that 66% of the inmates at, in 201 Poplar right now, this is at least their sixth time to be in there. So why would people be released from jail, released from bondage, and be set free only to make decisions that would send them right back into bondage? And James sat there for a minute, probably took a minute to like form his thoughts. And then he looked, looked right in my eyes and he said, Pastor Josh, I guess when it comes down to it, me and some of my friends don't know what it's like to be free. And I looked back at him and I said, James, I said, I think I preach in front of people every single Sunday who would say the same thing. They want freedom, but they live in defeat or they want freedom and all they see around them is everything but freedom. When Paul writes to churches in the Bible, Paul's writing to people that he wants them to experience the freedom in God. Isn't this what good church leaders do? Like good church leaders want their people to be free. It's not just about growing churches and better attendance. It's a, we want people to be released from bondage and set free in God and be able to grasp the fullness of God and live into the greatness of everything God wants for you. So Paul writes to them. So if you have your Bibles in Colossians, and I, I know Pastor Darren has done a great job walking you through Colossians 1 and 2. I just want to point out a couple of things in Colossians building up to chapter 3. Paul is writing to this church in this city. And he's having to fix a problem. And, and one of the big problems for them is that they have taken Jesus and they've said, here's the gospel of Jesus. And you've got to have the gospel of Jesus to be saved. But then they've lined up all these other philosophies that you can follow too if you want to experience the fullness of God. And Paul's writing saying, no, like you can't just have Jesus and then line up all these other allegiances in your life. He has to be the center. He has to be the focus of your life. There's not Jesus and anything else. It's just Jesus and too often, even today, it may not be other philosophies that you're placing next to Christianity, but there are other allegiances that we place right there with our allegiance to who Jesus is and who He's supposed to be. Or we think, if I can just get better myself, then I can get better with Jesus. Or if I can get to a place finance, where my finances are in a better shape, then I can get closer to Jesus. Or sometimes as a church, we can think if we can get to a certain number, then we can get closer to Jesus when what we need is focus on Jesus and trust that Jesus can help sort everything else in your life out. He has to be the center of it all. 
So in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, Paul lists what became a hymn the church used to sing. It's six verses of the beauty and the greatness and the authority of Jesus, that he was, he was there with God, creating the world. He's at the center of it all. If you need something to hang on your mirror, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, would be something great to recite every morning, to center your heart, to pre- prepare you to live with God. Jesus has to be in his rightful place. Here's a church, and Paul's writing to fix them. And a lot of times when we think about problems and solutions, we begin with the problem, and then we try to work through the solution. In the book of Colossians, Paul doesn't begin with problems and then work through the solution. Paul begins with the solution and then works out the problems. The solution is Jesus, Colossians 1. He begins with it. You've got to have this in place. And with that in place, now let's talk about some of the problems that need to be fixed. So so he's placing Jesus at the front and center of of who this church is and who they're supposed to be. Sometimes in our culture, especially in our culture right now, I feel like there are times where the church and where Christians can talk so much about Christian principles and Christian values and, and Christian moral values, but we forget the Christ and Christian. That we can hold up what we feel like are the Christian ways to live or to vote, and we forget that there is a person, Jesus. One of the problems Paul is addressing is that there were people in that church that were given into Gnosticism, which was basically this, that the divine is good and everything of the world is bad, which isn't what Jesus teaches and not what the Bible teaches. Not when God created the world and said, this is good. But there was this teaching, God is, divine is good. Everything of matter and humanity, it is bad. So what this led to were people believing that How could Jesus be fully God and fully human? It can't happen that way. Either he's fully God and he can't be human, or he's fully human and he can't be God. So Paul's writing to help address this, that, hey, it is possible that Jesus is fully God and fully human. Something I've been trying to teach our church the last few months is that God is bigger than you could ever imagine. That the glory of God expands this state, this country, this universe. God is so big. Yet even in God's bigness, God is willing to get as small as God needs to get so that he can encounter you. This is what God did through Jesus. As big as God is, that everything in the universe will bow down and worship him as big as he is. He's willing to get as small as we need him to get. There's some people in this room and God's going to ask you one day to do something really big for the kingdom of God. But everybody in this room, every day, God's asking you to do little small things that add up the things in the kingdom of God and the point to the greatness of the big God. So Paul's trying to get their thinking straight. Sometimes, especially here in a couple of months, we're gonna, maybe you've already heard, started hearing Christmas music and commercials for Christmas. Seems like it starts earlier and earlier every year. But you're going to hear talk about the war on Christmas, or what does it mean to keep Christ in Christmas? I'm much more concerned right now in the times we're living in that we are keeping Christ in Christian, not just Christ in Christmas. That Jesus is not just a philosophy or a belief system or a few things that think in your head. He's a person to worship who gave his life for us, who lives today. I have a friend in North Dallas. He pastors a church. Just recently, they led a woman to Jesus. God led a woman to Jesus through this church. And this woman gave a testimony in front of the church. Up until that point in her life, she was born and raised a Muslim. 
And when she gave her life to Jesus, the testimony in front of the church was this. She said, I, it took me meeting Christians in the flesh to overcome all of the Christians I have encountered and experienced on social media. That I had to finally meet some to believe in who this Jesus really is. In Colossians, and even today, if we misdiagnose the problems in our lives, it will lead us to the wrong solution. And if we latch on to the wrong solution, it's going to give us the wrong lens to view our problems. But if we believe that the solution is Jesus, then He will make clear what the problems and obstacles are and teach us how to navigate through them. So, in Colossians 3... How it goes is this, since you have been raised with Christ. This is language of resurrection. It's language of new life. It's language of baptism. I've, been, I've had the privilege to baptize probably hundreds of people. And, I, and one that comes to mind, I remember this time I was at a church camp and there was this person who had just experienced the power of God just came upon this young man and it was like 1.30 in the morning, but he was ready to be immersed. He was ready to jump into this river. So we drove down to this river and there's this place at, at this camp where they would baptize people. And, and we, we drove up at 1.30 in the morning and the light shone down on the river where we would baptize folks. And when that happened, a few water moccasins took off swimming from the place we would baptize people. And at this moment, for those of us who've practiced forms of immersion and baptism, like my whole theology, how I thought about baptism began to change in the moment. I was like, I mean, the really people really have to go under. How about sprinkle? Like, this is a great time to believe in sprinkling, all right? And then it hit me. I was like, nowhere in the Bible do you see that whoever, like there has to be somebody who puts their hands on someone to baptize them and to bring them back to life. So I was like, dude, you go out there. Whenever you see my hand go down, man, you go down. Hang out with Jesus as long as you want. When you're ready to come up, you come up. It's all up to you, all right? If you get bitten, you die down there. What better place to die than right there with Jesus, all right? We went into the water together. But, But early on in Christianity, a couple hundred years into Christianity, what they would do when they would baptize people is people would be baptized completely nude. And I'm not suggesting you bring this back in the life of the church, all right? But their thinking was, I'm going in all in. Everything I have, fully surrendered to everything God is. And they would go into the water, everything I have, not just toe deep or ankle deep or waist deep or even neck deep, all in, everything I am, I'm going into God. And when they would come out of the water, the church would be there to give them a white robe to represent being clothed with Christ, to give them a spoonful of honey to represent how they're being led by God into the promised land and these little gifts that were given by the church to affirm who they are in God and what they are in God and where God wants to lead them since you have been raised with Christ. And here are four things. You can write these down. See them in your Bible. Mark them, put a star by them. Number one, since you've been raised with Christ, you set your hearts on things that are above Since you've been raised with Christ, you set your hearts on things that are above. God began pressing on me a few years ago. The need to take very seriously the time for my heart to be laid before God. Have you realized in church, like often we sing some really bold stuff to God? I love the songs we sing, but sometimes we are singing bold things that I don't know if our hearts are ready to follow some of the things we're singing. 
about God like taking our hearts and making us more like God. And there are times where I, I spend time in prayer, lengthy seasons. I'm like, God, I need you to p- perform some heart surgery on me. Show me some things that need to change in my life. And then God, God begins to move in those prayers. And you're like, oh, I didn't mean like to go that hard after my heart. About six years ago, I was finishing the first book I wrote. And I booked a trip to go to Kansas City to write. Uh, Kansas City, there's a, prayer, there, there's a place of prayer. It's called IHOP, International House of Prayer. All right, Maybe it's IHOP now. Maybe they went with something different. All right? I don't know. But International House of Prayer. Since like 2000, there's been around-the-clock prayer in this prayer room. And, and I'd heard that authors would go there, and, and they would write, and they would pray. Just in a, in a place, just experiencing the power of God. So I booked a trip to go. But then I ended up finishing the manuscript and turning into a publisher a month before my trip, but I'd already paid for my trip, and I didn't get the insurance because I'm cheap, all right? So I had this trip booked, but I looked at my to-do list, and it was long. And I just told my wife, I was like, Casey, I'm not going. I'm just... I'm going to cancel the trip and stay here. She's like, no, I think you should go. And I was like, why? I I was going to go to write. I'm done writing. She said, what if you go for three days with no responsibility but to be with God? I was like, baby, I can do that here. She's like, I think you need to be with Jesus. And I didn't really like the way she said it. Like, like you need some time with Jesus? I I think my first response was like, your mama needs some time with Jesus. You 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 need Jesus, not me. She's like, I think you need to go and spend some time with Jesus. So she talked me into it. So I flew into Kansas City, had three days with no responsibility. I didn't have a sermon to write that week. Leadership responsibility. It was spring break, so it was just three days to be with God. My phone was off, and I took one prayer with me, Psalm 134, verse 23 and 24. Search my heart, O God. Know my anxious thoughts. Lead me in the everlasting way. And I would just repeat this prayer over and over, hundreds of times. For a few hours, I sat in this prayer room, repeating this prayer. And then I sensed God speak over me and say, Josh, I need you to keep praying that prayer because you have no clue what you are asking for right now. Two things cause me to to be fearful when it comes to taking extended periods of time to be in the presence of God. One fear is this, what if nothing happens? What if I go into the presence of God or I take a time, an extended season, a few days where I'm laboring in the presence of the Lord, seeking a word from God, and what if nothing happens but that I'm aware that God's presence is with me? Is that enough to keep me coming back? But my other fear is this. What if I take time to be with God and something does happen? One of my fears is nothing happening. The other fear is what if something does happen? Because a lot of times, all right, sometimes God does come to affirm who you are and where you've been and to speak affirming, encouraging words over you. But a lot of times when God speaks, it's God poking, it's God revealing insecurities that you may not know were there. And that day, God started revealing things in my life that I was unaware of. Insecurities, things in my life that reflected a lot more of death than it reflected of life. And sometimes it takes God disorienting us and then putting us back together. And I've been in enough of these seasons with God. I'm, I'm willing to go through some of those hard times because I know God has my best interests in mind. That God wants to lead us to a healthier place. God began to press on me a few years ago saying, Josh, why does it seem like there are times where you take better care of your car than you take care of your own soul? And I remember saying, God, like, what do you mean? Like, what does that even mean? Sometimes I think God has to speak things really simply to me. 
And it was like, you, when your car's on E, you don't even think about if you're going to fill it up or not. You may have to just put a few dollars in, but you know if you have a, to get to and from work and other places and take your kids, you're going to fill it up. If your car needs an oil change, you're going to go get an oil change. If your tire's flat, you're not going to drive on it until it's fixed. But often when we are on empty in our hearts, what we do is we think, if I can just make it until the end of the school year, if I can just make it to Christmas, if I can just make it to that vacation, if I can just get to the weekend, if I can just get to that season or that or get through this. And, and I think so many times God is saying, will you just believe today that there's something I want to speak into your life that I want to give you? Will you just take just a moment Today, don't wait for that season. Right now, there are ways I can fill you up in ways you could never imagine. The second thing is this. Since you have been raised with Christ, you set your mind on things that are above. Not just your heart on things that are above. You set your mind, your thoughts on things that are above. In 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3 through 5, it says, We have been given power to demolish strongholds, so we are called to take captive every thought and to make it obedient to Jesus. Where Jesus isn't just something we do once a week, but where we are focusing our mind on things that are above. Here's something God began to teach me a few years ago. We are today, arguably, the most exhausted people who have ever walked the face of this planet. We stay up late. We wake up early. We find things that help us go to sleep at night because we're so stressed out we can't sleep. So we go for a glass of wine or melatonin or whatever, NyQuil, whatever it may be. And then in the morning, we immediately need our coffee, our energy drink to give us a boost to make it through the day. When God created something called rest, right? We're the most exhausted people who've ever walked the face of the planet. And arguably today, we are the most distracted people who have ever walked the face of the planet. And sometimes I wonder if God is looking at his people saying, how in the world am I going to speak a clear word into your mind? How am I going to speak a clear word into an exhausted, distracted mind and an exhausted, distracted heart? I think there's so many times God's looking at us saying, there's so much I want to give you and speak into your life, but you're not giving me the time of day or the time you give me. You're asking for things and you're asking for me to reveal something, but the moment you say amen, you're gone to your next meeting or your next appointment. And the moment, you, the moment I'm ready to speak something into your life, you're gone. Can you just pay attention just a little bit? There's so much I want to give you. Since you've been raised with Christ, focus your hearts on things that are above, your mind on things that are above. Verse three is this, number three, is that you have died. You have died. This is a mystery. It's now you're called into Christ, but you have died. There's so many people who want resurrection, but they don't want to go through death to get there. And I don't think this is calling you to ask for forms of death or to beg God for forms of pain to come into your life so that you know what it's like to suffer. But I do think it is a call for us to embrace the discipline of surrendering before God, of crying out to God, realizing that I cannot lead myself to greater maturity in God. It is God who matures me. We have died, meaning we often place ourselves or are called to place ourselves in a position or a posture where only the power of God can bring us to life. And number four is this. Verse four reads, it's about the glory of God that when Christ, who is your life, when he appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Uh, there are times in the Bible and in the New Testament where the glory of God is talked about as something to be experienced. 
So the glory of God is not just every day God is looking for people to give him glory, but God is looking to share what God has. God does not hoard all of his goodness. He's so quick to dispense it. And it's not that God is sharing his glory with you so that then glory goes to you. It's all glory to God, but the glory of God is something to share. The way Paul says this in Romans 8 is that because you are adopted children of God, you get to share in God's glory, and not just when you die. But here's what Romans 8 says. If you want to share in the glory of God, we must also share in the suffering of Christ. There are people in Decatur around Decatur who were living without Jesus, who don't know Him. Maybe they knew Him years ago, but they're not walking with Him right now, and they're in need of people who are willing to step into the mess and the chaos and to go out of their way to connect with people so that we can introduce them or reintroduce them to the greatness and the beauty of Jesus. I had a chance to travel to Ethiopia back in January. I went with 35 pastors. We Went with Compassion International. It was just an amazing trip. Got to see a lot of what God is doing in Ethiopia. After all, Ethiopia, Christianity in Ethiopia does go back to the first century. It's this rich history. And while we were in Ethiopia, we woke up on Sunday morning and they said, hey, we want you in the buses by 10 o'clock. We're going to go to an English-speaking Ethiopian church. And we all thought we were going to a church where we were going to double the size that day. We end up walking into a warehouse with thousands of people where there was a revival taking place in this church. There are thousands of people in a warehouse with no air conditioning in Ethiopia. It was hot. The worship service went on for three hours and we could have stayed there longer. It was like heaven on earth. There are people in there who lived in immense forms of poverty. But they're praising Jesus with everything they had with smiles on their faces because he was the only joy they needed. We sang songs, we heard sermons, we heard testimonies, and, and at one point they stood up and they said, we have a tribe here, and there's a tribal Christian dance that has gone all the way back to the 7th century, and they're here today. Who wants to see them perform? And we raised our hands like, yeah, I've, I've never seen a tribal dance in church. And, they, and it was, we were just caught up into the heavens. I grew up in white church, all right, people? We didn't see tribal dances, all right? We didn't, we didn't have any rhythm in church where I grew up at all. Toward the end of that worship service, the pastor stood up and said, hey, there's a testimony that you've got to hear today. And there's a village just outside of the city we were in in Ethiopia. And in this village, there was a, a church in this village and they, were, they didn't have clean water. So they put together their own money and resources to try to have clean water. Now, we don't think about this sometimes, but digging for water in these places, it's, it's, it's risky. And not that you may die doing it, but you may dig and dig for hours or days or weeks and get nothing. So they put together their own resources to try to find a way so they can have clean water for their village. And they, the, the number in Ethiopia is 45 meters. If they can dig to 45 meters, they know if they hit water or not. And they were digging and they were digging and the church was surrounded and surrounding them and the church was praying. This went on for hours and hours. They're hoping they could find water. They get to 45 meters. There was nothing. And people stood up and they just, they, were, they felt defeated. They started to walk away. And a woman in the church, this great leader, an elder in the church said, wait, 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 let's stop. Let's stop. Let's, let's come back and let's pray and let's just do this. They were tired. They were weary. She said, let's go one more meter, just one more meter and let's see what God will do. 
And they went to 46. And when they hit 46, there was overflow. It was just this overflow of water. And I couldn't help but in that moment to even leave that worship service and to begin to reflect how many people in our churches are here every week and they're at 45 and they've been stuck at 45. And maybe you're at 45 today and you're at 45 because of complacency or apathy or maybe you're at 45 because of moral failure. Maybe you're at 45 because of depression or relational dysfunction or bankruptcy. I don't know what it may be, but you're at 45 and God is asking, can you come just a little deeper? And just a little deeper, just asking God to take you a little deeper because it's not your own effort that gets you 45 to 46, but hearing and responding to the invitation of God that at 46, who knows what may happen? That the, the heavens may open up and the blessings of God may pour forth. So can we pray today? God, can He take us from 45 to 46? God's asking to come just a little deeper. Since you have been raised with Christ, we're, we're pointing everything we have to God, that God will use us, use the church, to speak and breathe His name into this entire area. So will you close your eyes and bow your heads? I want to ask those who, uh, leaders in the church, prayer leaders, altar leaders, if you will, if you want to go ahead and make your way to the altar. And for the church, I want to ask you to do this. Will you just take your palms and put them palms down in your lap? And as you put your palms, palms down, I just wanted to represent a posture and I want you to take a moment to allow this to represent something you need to lay in front of God, something you need to lay before the throne of God. What is something you need to let go of? It could be a sin. It could be a relationship. It could be an emotion. What is something you need to let go of? It could be an obstacle. What is it that you have been holding in a death grip that you need to let go of in the presence of God and lay before His throne. We're letting it go because we're trusting that God knows what to do with whatever it is we're letting go of. We're told that the blood of Jesus, when He died, He purchased our sin. He owns them. So it's, we need to give it to the rightful owner. He knows what to do with it. Just speak whatever it is, whatever you need to let go of. And I want to ask you now, will you just turn your palms, palms up in the presence of God? There's so many times in my own life, my heart often follows where my posture goes. So I try to pray a lot of prayers with open hands to receive from the Lord. And I just want to ask you right now, if you've laid something before God, you've laid something before His throne, we just receive from Him. Ask God for a blessing. Ask Him for a word. Ask God... Just to give you something. God loves to give. He's a joyful giver. He teaches us how to give. Just open up and receive from Him.